You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Good morning. You guys got me here? Slightly? I can just yell. I'm just kidding. I won't yell. Uh, My name is... You guys can laugh at jokes. It's okay. Even if they're not funny, it helps, but I'm just kidding. Uh, My name's Nick. I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Um, We're so glad that you're joining us this morning. Uh, The first week in May, there's assuredly two runnings that happen. One is the running of the horses, and the other is the running of the noses. So I ask in advance if I cough or sneeze or sniffle into my microphone. It's unavoidable when you have this thing right by your mouth, so please forgive me in advance. But uh, if you've been here before, um, or if you haven't been here before, we have been walking through a sermon series in the book of Titus, and this sermon series is entitled A Beautiful Church. Here's kind of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, the first week, we looked at the beautiful confidence that we have in the gospel in verses one, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 4. We looked at a beautiful calling, that which um, Paul, or Paul has set before Titus to make right um, the, the church, to set, to set right what has been undone by installing elders in the church. We saw that in verses 5 through 16 of chapter 1. Today, we're going to be looking at the beautiful community, looking at that which Paul calls us to live out as a church community. Next week, we'll be looking at the beautiful commission, and then we'll be concluding the week after that by looking at the beautiful church. So before we dive into today's text, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that you have made us into a beautiful community. This is ultimately a work of your hands by the pouring out of your gospel on us as a people. God, as we look at today's text, I ask that you would help us to see and understand the reality that, yes, the gospel is something that is done to us, but because of our reception of the gospel, we are changed and therefore we act differently. There are things that you call us to live out as a people with a new identity. So I pray, God, for all of us this morning that we would have humility. There's things in this text that um, are sticky, if, if we're honest, that, that maybe culturally are harder for us to grasp or understand. And so we ask, Spirit, that you would go ahead of us, soften our hearts and our minds to be receptive to your word. Above all, Jesus, we ask that your gospel would be proclaimed, that it would be made much of, that as we hear it and receive it, it would change who we are to the very core. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we start Titus 2, looking at verse 1, right, Paul makes this really, really hard pivot, like a complete 180 from Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. He goes, Paul goes from telling Titus, um, to uh, talking to those about uh, talking about those who are living and teaching ungodly lives, and then he turns his attention to Titus and he says, "But you, Titus, a really strong, emphatic you." He says, "You are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching." So Titus is to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching, so that unlike 
um, unlike the ungodly, those who, as it said in, in uh, Titus 1.11, were ruining households by their teaching, Titus is called to exhibit and proclaim things consistent with sound teaching so that households would be an adornment for the gospel. Pastor James has mentioned this several times as we've walked through this study, but this idea of sound teaching, it communicates the idea of health. The word sound communicates the idea of health. So rather than having uh, teaching with a sore and scratchy throat, a stuffy nose, it's teaching that's up, active, and feeling good. The image of sound teaching, it's being like a healthy body. And that image is so important for us to hold on to because like a body, sound teaching is a whole coordinated system. It all works together. If a body is maimed or diseased, it doesn't function as it ought. It's not a healthy body. The same is true of our theology or, or our teaching, as Paul calls it. If our teaching is maimed, if it literally has limbs missing, we have parts missing, or our teaching is diseased, maybe the parts are there, but they have something going on on the inside. If our teaching has bits that are distorted, then our teaching is not healthy. It's no longer healthy or sound. So sound teaching is this, this plumb line, if you will, that Paul gives to Titus. And it's the foundational thing that Paul calls Titus to teach. But notice here that Paul says, proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Pray, proclaim things that fit in with sound teaching. That is, he's supposed to proclaim ethical implications for the theological convictions that he has. So he's proclaiming things that are consistent with sound teaching. It doesn't say, teach sound teaching alone, and then everything else will work itself out. It doesn't say, only teach things that are ethical, right? It says, we need both. It's a living and a teaching. So what we see or what we will see today in Paul's call for us is that ethics and theology go together. Living and teaching are part of one package deal. You can't have healthy living without healthy teaching, and you can't have healthy teaching in the church without healthy living. So this morning in Paul's text that he gives to us, he is showing us what a beautiful community lives and believes. The text today, Paul's laying out what's often referred to as a household code, okay? Um, uh, culture, if we can kind of zoom out a little bit, if you think about this word culture, it's things that are said and done in a certain community. These household codes, in a sense, are, are the, the, the part that's saying, hey, we do these things and we say these things in this group of people. So these were used in secular writings to, to, to talk to people and communicate like, hey, as this person, you do this, right? If you're a part of uh, what, what are CrossFit gyms called? Boxes. If you're a part of the, this box, like we do this, right? Or uh, if you're a part of a chess club, I don't know. We, we do and we say these things, right? Anybody, maybe any Hobby Lobby shoppers? It's okay. Yeah, there we go. There we go. If you've shopped at Hobby Lobby, you probably have one of these goofy family rule signs, right? Do we have? Yeah. My mom literally has this sign in our house and I look at it as we eat, but it means nothing to me, right? Um, no offense, mom, right? But this is kind of what Paul's getting at, right? He is showing something. It's a little probably more thought through and it's probably a little bit more packful. So it's kind of a household code. It says, as the people of God, as the called out and redeemed ones of God, this is how we should act, okay? So no offense if you have a family rule sign, go for it. I, you know, you do you, but sometimes they're not the most effective if they're not talked about. So 
Here's what Paul says, right? Here's what he talks about in a beautiful community. The first thing that we see is, is the teaching or the, the ethics of a beautiful community. So Paul breaks it down for us by age and gender, okay? So he's grouping folks up and he's saying, hey, for you, do this. For you, do that. For you, do this, okay? Now, there's, there's old folks and young folks. I'm using Paul's language, so if you don't like me to say older men uh, or older women, I'm just using biblical language here, so... Um, you can talk to God about it. I don't know. It's, it's fine. Um, but one thing I want to note at the outset, right? A beautiful community we see here is a multi-generational community. Okay, y'all hear that one more time for the folks in the back? Yeah, a, a beautiful community is a multi-generational community. Paul assumes that there are older folks and younger folks together and that they are involved in each other's lives. Do with that what you will. The first group we see, older men. So who's old, right? Or to be more polite, I'll soften a little bit. Who's of a certain age? It's like, to be frank, I got a cramp in the back trying to stuff my wire in my pocket. Am I old? Maybe. I don't know. I think most folks, though, posit it is more based on age, similar to like we have senior citizens or we've got like the AARP benchmark, right? Um, Paul probably is having people that are 50 plus in mind. So men of a certain age, here's what Paul says. Here's what he calls you to. He says, older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. So remember Paul's audience here, right? It's, uh, it, it, he's, t- he's talking to people who one of their own said that they were lazy gluttons, evil beasts, and liars, right? So this is who he's talking to. So much of Paul's encouragement, it stems from addressing certain issues, right? It's issues that he's looking at a place and a culture, and he's saying, okay, to to be a gospel witness in this culture, here's what you must do. So he is speaking contextually, right? If you hear the word context, that means he's talking to a specific uh, place at a specific time for a specific people. However, because these things are consistent with other teaching in Scripture, we can see that this is not just one-off cultural teaching. Okay, this is spanning much of scripture. These same things come up. And as they come up, the teaching is consistent, which shows us that we ourselves, we can look at these texts and say, okay, this isn't just some cultural one-off thing that Paul said. This is applicable for us as well. So men of a certain age, you're to be self-controlled, worthy of, worthy of respect and sensible. There's, there's a certain gravitas, right, that's called for, for, for older men. There's, there's this purity, there's, um, this, this dignity and maturity that comes with it. And they are also to be sound in faith, love, and endurance. Now you can see here that the kind of underpinning is actually the three foundational Christian virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. I would argue that this word endurance is really hope lived out over a lifetime right? So these older men are are to carry about with them these three foundational Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope, or endurance, uh, endurance, hope lived out for a lifetime. So older men in a, in a beautiful community, the call for you is to carry out, to carry a a holy gravitas with you, a weightiness, a respectability, a self-control, a sensibility that communicates maturity relationally and spiritually. Paul then turns to, to older women. He says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Literally, the word here is she-devils. Look it up. No, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women. So women of a certain age then are called to be 
reverent, literally meaning like a priestess. As one commentator says, they are women, older women are to carry into daily life the demeanor of priestesses in a temple. So they're supposed to be reverent. They're not to be slanderers or to put differently, to be gossips, people tearing down others using their words maliciously. Nor are they to be slaves to excessive drinking. The last call uh, from Paul is, is for older women to teach what is good to the younger women. This is a high and lofty call for women of a certain age, one that you should take seriously. Paul's saying rather than spending hours playing canasta and drinking mimosas, talking about how bad Becky's children were at church on Sunday, Paul is saying, go to Becky and invest in her life. Tell her what is good. Don't tell her what is bad about her. Tell her what is good and teach what is good in her life and how she should live out the gospel implications of a beautiful community. Older women, Paul places great responsibility upon you to disciple younger women, to multiply yourselves, to multiply the, 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 the years of wisdom that you have. Hear this, older women. You don't need a discipleship curriculum. You don't need permission from anybody. <laughs> if I or Pastor James says, what are you doing discipling people? You're saying, well, I'm just living out what God told me to do. You don't need our permission. Go. Disciple. Multiply yourselves. In a beautiful community, older women are called to live in great holiness and reverence, multiplying their, their decades of faithfulness by pouring into the next generation of women. Paul then transitions. He, he, he moves in, in verse three through six, or three through five to younger women. Right? He says, older women are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. Now, there's a lot here. We could probably spend 10 sermons on this, <laughs> but I have one-tenth. So I'm going to do my best right, to, to give a little bit of clarity for the stickier parts. But again, I simply can't touch it all. If you do have further questions, men or women, <laughs> come talk to myself or Pastor James after the sermon. We, we would love to answer questions you have as best as we can in, in accordance with God's word. It says the older women are supposed to teach the younger women what is good, right? So hear that teaching aspect so that they may encourage young women to live out this, this, these ethics, right? This living component. It's teaching and living are both required for, for a healthy, beautiful community. So here's what Paul says. And bear with me, right? We're going to walk through it, and then I'll give some, some nuance and rejoinders. So if you're squirming in your seat, just give me a little space. All right, it's cool. This isn't Twitter. Put your guns down. We're just going to talk about God's Word together. So first, young women are to love their husbands and to love their children. What's interesting is Paul is calling women to do something that we're like, well, shouldn't that just come naturally, right? Like, shouldn't you just love your kids when, uh, you know, all the birth stuff happens, right? Like that's, that's hard. 
Shouldn't that just happen naturally? But the reality is when we live in a broken and fallen world, the things that we would expect to come naturally, they simply don't. The world doesn't work like it's supposed to. So our our feelings, our thoughts, our desires, the way we live and be in this world, it's disordered. So the things that Paul is teaching, though they should be natural, and though we would expect a mother to love her husband and and her child, they, they don't always come naturally in a broken and fallen world for different reasons. But because, hear this, because... What we see as natural doesn't always come naturally. Gospel ethics don't just happen. Because of that, we need to teach about gospel ethics, right? Again, Paul says at the outset, he says, teach things that fit in to sound doctrine, into sound teaching, which means it's not just the sound teaching alone that will cure all your problems. The gospel absolutely is the foundational thing that we all need. Hear me say that, right? The gospel is the foundation. But if we don't talk about anything above that, we're going to have like weird looking houses built on, on that, that foundation that are probably a little bit shaky. So a beautiful community, it teaches the ethics that don't always come naturally in a broken and fallen world. That's why we should and will teach that all human beings bear God's image. And as image bearers, they should be treated with dignity and honor. This includes, but is not limited to unborn children in the womb who have a right to life. It includes, but is not limited to black and brown folks who do not always get treated ethically and justly in all segments of society. This includes, but is not limited to people who are not able-bodied who have physical and at times mental, uh, mental struggles or disabilities that prevent them from achieving things in the same way that somebody who I, as a physically capable man, can do on my own. I don't. We need and will teach about these gospel, uh, these, these gospel ethics. Like, literally, this is what Paul calls me and Pastor James as pastors of this church to do teach things that fit in to sound doctrine and sound teaching. Now, if you ever hear me say something that is not fitting in with sound teaching, talk to me. Let's talk. But the gospel calls us to talk about these gospel ethics. It's not just a a theology and me and Jesus thing, right? Second, Paul calls young, young, or moving on, excuse me, young, Paul calls young women to be self-controlled, pure, and workers at home. I can't sum this up better than uh, the famed uh, British pastor, John Stott. He says, it would, hear this, watch with me, read it along, okay, follow along, this is important. It would not be legitimate to base on this word, workers at home, either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage, love the use of the word vocation there, and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them. Look, one of, one of the errors that can be committed when we read this text is what's called, this is a big word, but say with me, anachronistic, okay, anachronistic, there we go, eisegesis, okay, eisegesis, okay. Good job. Anachronistic, eisegesic. 
Anachronistic means not the right time. Here the an and chron, like chronology, right? Eisegesis is, is the word that we talk about when we're talking about reading, reading a text, okay? What happens is that we, we read a word like home, right? Or workers at home. And we carry all our linguistic baggage back into Paul's day and we put it on top of Paul's word, the way he uses home, okay? In Paul's day, a household was really like a hub of business, right? In an agrarian society, like, you, you didn't like, I don't know, get in your horse and buggy and then drive like 20 minutes, you know, and then your boss is there like making you punch the clock. You lived where you worked. This is who Paul was writing to. So men who, again, biologically, don't get mad at me, who are physically stronger, right? We physically can lift heavier bags, probably hold more rows, right? Men who are out in the fields doing physically demanding labor, women were at home running the business. It's a different picture of the household, guys. We can't take our household and pop it onto Paul's household. This isn't, this isn't mad men, right? Don Draper driving off to the corner office, Betty at home with the kids. It was probably a lot more of like, if we can talk about it, the work from home life, right? It's like you're making the biggest marketing pitch of your life and you got your kids running in the background, right? Or worse, you end up a meme on TV because your, your wife or your kids are like crawling in the background or something. You know, it's like the, the, the household was a hub of business then. We see this even in the Proverbs 31 woman who, who has, for many, become this bastion of the stay-at-home stereotype. She was killing it, right? Don't get me wrong. The Proverbs 31 woman, she was getting after it, but not in the way that some people interpret it. She was working. <laughs> she was feeding employees. Like, go look at the text, Proverbs 31. She was feeding employees, overseeing staff, buying properties, creating business plans, making money, providing for her children. Paul is not saying stay at home. That's not what this text is saying. What Paul is saying is when you are at home, work hard. I, I love the idea of vocational calling, right? For, 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 um, for being a, a wife and a, and, a, uh, and a mother, right? John Stott said if, if a woman steps into this vocation, this vocation is then higher or more preeminent than her other vocation. If you're a lawyer, awesome. Don't let it supersede your primary vocation of being a mother. But the same is true for husbands, right? We just read in Titus last week that for a pastor, for someone who's supposed to be a manager of God's household, they're supposed to be good managers of their own household. Men, the same call is for you. Don't let your vocation supersede your vocation as a, as a father or a husband. So Paul's not saying stay at home. He's saying when you're at home or, or even when you're out and about, whatever, your, your primary vocation should not be neglected for another vocational calling that you have. And then finally, young, young women, it says, are to be in submission to their husbands. Stay with me, okay? Still got time for nuance. It's cool. You can tweet at me, but I don't read Twitter, so go for it. Um, notice here though, right? Young women are called to submit to their husbands, but not just any old bro, not to somebody else's husband, 
They're called to submit to their husband. Biblical submission, y'all, it is a posture of service. It's an attitude towards another. Biblical submission is not this battle of, well, who's going to make the decisions for us? More importantly, hear me, ladies. Biblical submission is not talking about your worth or your value. Our, our culture always tells us that there's this hierarchy, right? If you're at the top, you're worth way more than the people at the bottom. Whether that's with money, followers, the, 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 the job chart at work, right? The CEO is more valuable, has more worth than the factory line worker. Leaders are more important than followers. The top is more valuable than the bottom. That is not in Scripture. In the church, hear me, God does give us order. He lays out for us clearly that there's order in covenantal relationships. Okay, specifically, relation with God, right? Relationship with the church, that's a covenantal order. And relationship in the household, right? There's a covenantal order between husband and wife and a covenantal order between uh, parent and child, right? Those are covenantal relationships. Those have order. But the quote-unquote hierarchy of that order does not communicate your value. These orders simply call us to play different parts and different roles, Pastor James and myself do not have more value or worth than you people as congregants who are submitting to our leadership. If you hear us say otherwise, leave. (laughs) Go to a church (laughs) that doesn't do that. The reality, folks, is that we are all called to submission at some level, right? We look at in Titus 3 that we're all called to submit to governmental authorities in our lives. But that does not commit, that does not speak to our value or our worth or dignity as human beings. Governor Bashir does not have more value than me. Mayor Fisher does not have more value than you. Councilwoman George over in Beachmont, who's my councilwoman, she does not have more inherent value than me. She's given a role and a responsibility and in certain areas, she's given a part to play. I am given a part to play in that area of town as a citizen of Beachmont. We just have different roles and we work together to achieve the goals of our community. For some reason, look, I, I, don't know, I don't know why, but for some reason, God has wired marriages, covenantal marriages to work in this way, to have a specific order, to play different roles or parts in the home. But notice with me for a second, right? The reason Paul encourages this ethic to be lived out in a beautiful community is in verse five, it says, so that God's word would not be slandered. We'll see this again later in the text that this motivation for us is brought up, that actually the way we live impacts the way God's word is perceived. So younger women are are called to live out these ethics so that God's word would not be spoken ill of in a watching and unbelieving world. That's heavy stuff. Okay, now let me come, offer a little nuance, okay? I'm going to speak to a few different groups here. 
I hope this will bring nuance. But again, if you have questions, talk to myself or Pastor James after the service. First, I want to talk to husbands. Notice this text does not prompt you to prompt your wife to be submissive. <laughs> Let me say that one more time for you. In case you didn't hear, clean out your ears, right? Okay, clean them out. This text does not prompt you to prompt your wife to be submissive. Does not tell you that you have a leadership trump card that you can lay on the table when you guys are arguing over where to eat or more serious stuff like, are we going to move? I would argue that if you coerce or worse, force your wife into submission, then it's not submission. That's what we would call subjugation. And if you are leading your wife through a pattern of subjugation, then you are being an abusive husband. I don't say that lightly, but it has to be said. Abuse is not just physical. Abuse can be emotional, can be spiritual, can be verbal. But if you are leading as a husband out of subjugation, you are committing a grave sin against your wife. And you are not living out the vocational calling that God has given you in Ephesians 5 to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Praise God, Jesus did not lead you by subjugating you to his rule and reign. He gives you an opportunity to submit to his rule and reign because he's a good God. He's a good leader. (laughs) He's a good savior. A better response? Maybe your wife is not submissive. Better response is to ask God in prayer. God, I'm doing my best to lead in a loving and honoring way. Will you help me to continue to lead in a loving and honor way and fulfill my duty as a husband in the home? Help me to stay in my lane and not call out my sin or my wife's sins that I might see. Rather than subjugating our wives, why don't we pray for our wives that the gospel would change their hearts and minds, specifically in this area? Subjugation does not work. It's abuse. Full stop. Single dudes, my next group. Unless you're a pastor, as I said, a covenantal relationship that invites submission from those underneath your leadership, no woman needs to submit to you. I don't need to explain it any further. Single ladies. This text does not teach the following, that you have to get married to be valued by God, the church, men, other women, or or whatever, insert whatever. It does not teach that your sole purpose until you're married is to prepare yourself for marriage. If you want something to strive for, strive for Christ-like character rather than cultural implications of of what people say a a woman should do. Strive for Christ-like character. Third, this text does not teach that you cannot work now or that once you do get married that you have to stop working. 
I know it's a hard section of Scripture, especially for younger women. Married or unmarried. But Paul, again, for whatever reason, Paul has called younger women, married or unmarried, to, to live this out. This is what it looks like to participate in a beautiful community. And then Paul turns his attention, in verse 6, to younger men. He says, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. So if you're like me, you look at this, you're like, well, we kind of got off the hook easy, right? That's one thing, right? Uh, everyone else has to practice self-control and then all these other things. I, I don't know why that is, right? Why does Paul not elaborate on this? Well, I, I mean, it's possible that um, this was the only thing that he thought needed to be taught in that time. Maybe there was such lack of self-control. He's like, these younger men, they can't handle anything on top of this. They need to focus on this. Or Paul saw that this was the greatest thing that they needed. So in order to maximize their gospel impact in, live, in living in a beautiful community, they needed to practice self-control. But look at that. It's still not an easy call. He says, in everything. I know your, 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 your Bible's right. They, they probably break it up. It says verse seven, but those numbers were, they're not inerrant, right? Those were put in in like the 1500s, if you didn't know, or whatever. My Bible scholars can correct me later, but those were put in much later, okay? Like Paul wasn't writing, uh, all right, verse seven, in everything, right? That's not what was happening, okay? Those got, those got to add later. Most scholars know that this goes together. Be self-controlled in everything. It's not a small virtue, Okay, you can't, it's not enough to just be controlled in your finances or, or your work or, or your desires. It's a call to everything. That means the things you look at online. Be self-controlled in how much time you spend on your phone, Netflix, video games, whatever. Be self-controlled in your speech and your spending, your tweets, your Facebook posts, your eating, your spiritual habits. Younger men are called to be self-controlled in everything. Now, if you're in this younger men category, maybe you're looking at this and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst. I'm, I lack discipline, right? I, I'm horrible. But don't forget, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> like, how do we forget that, right? We, we've relegated self-control to like these productivity blogs. It's like, man, if I can just do my time blocking planner, like I'll be good and I'll be self-controlled. No, like it's a spiritual thing. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit that is given to you. You have it, okay? It may be a baby tree right now, or maybe a seedling, like my cucumber plants I just bought, right? It may be little, but it's there. What's beautiful is that it's given to you. But like all spiritual things, it has to be worked out as well. It's a both and. You have self-control, but you don't have self-control, Self-control is given, but it's also worked out. So work hard, younger men, to live in a beautiful community. This is what you're called to. Be self-controlled in everything. And then finally, Paul speaks um, to, to what I'm going to say, workers, and I'll explain why in a second. Verses 9 through 10. Just like the word household, okay, we can't import our, our vision or our linguistic ideals uh, onto certain words. So he talks about slaves, right? Paul is not speaking about race-based chattel slavery of the United States, okay? Slavery in this day was typically entered into to pay off a debt. It's kind of like, you know, in movie scenes where someone ate dinner and they're like, I can't pay. 
And they're like, all right, you're in the back washing dishes. It's more serious than that, so I don't want to make light of it. But that's kind of what it's like, right? You owe somebody something, you literally don't have the money to pay for it. So you contractually enter into slavery or servanthood to pay that debt off. Okay, so it's a little bit different. Don't take your linguistic ideals and dump it on the text. This is not, again, Paul is not saying that slavery is good. Okay, he's not saying thumbs up to slavery. That's not what scripture teaches. As we look at it, we can think of the ideas of workers, right? Which would apply to many of us. Verse nine, it says, slaves or or workers are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. So if we're going to apply this to our lives, to, to our beautiful community here at Sojourn Carlisle, the call is for us to be hard workers in all aspects of our work. Whether or not we have a boss we like, whether or not we're in a job we like, whether or not we're sitting in a class that we like, the call is to be hardworking. And I love that phrase, demonstrating utter faithfulness. <laughs> utter faithfulness. Again, the reason, just like um, Paul talks to young women, the reason that we do that, he says, is so that we may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. When, when we work hard, when we're faithful in our work, then we actually make God's teaching, God's sound teaching, beautiful to the watching world. You see, Paul, he lays out these ethics, he, he lays out these ways of being for us as we are called to live as a beautiful community. But church, remember, the foundation is sound teaching. The foundation is understanding the gospel. We are nothing without the gospel. The gospel, it's, it's the very fuel that powers our beautiful community. Without that gospel gas, we're just a hunk of metal sitting on the side of the road, unable to move or do anything. So that's why when Paul talks here, he pairs these ethics or these ways of being with the, the gospel. Look at verse 11. Church, this is what the gospel does for us. And this is the very fuel and the power we have to live as a beautiful community. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The gospel makes you eager to do good works if you have rightly received it and responded to it. Verse 15, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Church, look at what the grace of God does. It saves us. It says it brings salvation to all people. The grace of God instructs us. It teaches us a better way. It shows us that godlessness and worldly lust will never fulfill us like we think they will. The grace of God empowers us. If you're looking at all the ethics that Paul calls you to and you're like, I can't do that. You're right. But by the grace of God, you can. It empowers us to live as a beautiful community by the power of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God redeems us, right? We once were slaves to lawlessness, but we were set free by the work of Jesus Christ. The grace of God cleanses us. We were stained. We were dirty, red, stained, ugliness, but Christ washed us white as snow by his blood. And then the grace of God, church, it calls us to be a a special people. It says in verse 14, we are a people for his own possession. We are a part of God's family by the grace of God. And church, because of that, because we are God's family, we are a beautiful community. 
one that is fueled and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, every week when we gather together, we take a a meal together called communion, and this meal reminds us that we are nothing without this gospel. We take it every week because we need to be reminded every week of the work of Christ on our behalf. As we take this meal together, you, there's, there's individual elements in the pew backs in front of you. It's a call for us to remember as we partake. We remember Christ's suffering on our behalf. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as they were eating, he took bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. Let us take and eat this bread together. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.